0: We have three different passages of scripture that we're going to be referring to this morning. Exodus chapter seventeen, verses one through seven. There's a reference in Matthew four to that passage, so I wanted to make sure we looked at that. Exodus seventeen, page fifty nine, in your pew Bible. The title of the sermon comes from Jeremiah one seventeen which is either get yourself ready or dress yourself for work. And we'll spend most of our time looking at the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. So let's stand together as we read God's word and we'll begin with Exodus chapter 17 verse 1. To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink." And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying Is the Lord among us or not Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 17 But you Jeremiah Dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I commanded you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And finally, Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 7. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You be seated, and we'll take a few moments to reflect on God's word. When the ultimate test came on a descent over the Hudson River, he spoke into the intercom only once, and he gave the most terrifying instruction a pilot can give. Brace for impact with remarkable calm. Chesley spent his whole life getting ready for a five minute crucible where the lives of 155 people were on the line. This morning we're in the middle of a three-part series about getting ourselves ready. When we went through the book of Jeremiah, and specifically when we looked at chapter one of Jeremiah, God comes to Jeremiah, He calls Jeremiah, and He informs Jeremiah, these are all the things I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I am going to take care of all this stuff. But sandwiched right in the middle in verse 17 is this one phrase, get your, but, but you Jeremiah, get yourself ready. I mean, I'm sovereign and I'm in charge of everything and I'm going to get all the stuff I want to have done, done. I'm not depending on you Jeremiah, but I would like for you to enter in. To this mission together and you're going to have to get yourself ready you're going to have to be prepared and the phrase is a word picture it's it's the word picture of a of a man wearing a long robe who needs to make some very quick forward progress so in order to make that progress he'd have to take his robe up and he'd have to tuck it in his belt so that as he began to run out ahead nothing was hindering him And so God was coming to Jeremiah and saying, Jeremiah, there's some things wrapped around your legs that are going to hinder you in your service for me. And so you need to get yourself ready. You need to, to take an account of these things, pull them up, stuff them in your belt, deal with those things so when I call, you're ready. And that's the picture that we're left with this morning. Everyone who follows Jesus Christ is going to experience the crucible of their faith. They're going to be in a place that you're going to find out and other people are going to find out about you. Are you ready? I mean, the heat's gonna come on and people are gonna be on the line hoping that you're ready. And it may be a year and it may be five minutes or just one moment, but God needs you to be ready. Just whenever He calls, He wants you to be ready. And so I'm asking the question in this three part series, how do I get myself ready? How do I free myself up for action? What, what could be a hindrance to me? What might be easily wrapped around my feet that I would trip over and cause me to stumble at the moment that I need to be ready? And so in trying to answer that question or those questions, I've decided to look at the temptation that you see in Matthew chapter 4 you see it also in Luke chapter 4 and it's this point in Jesus's life just before his ministry where he's going to spend three years in public ministry that some things have to be worked out and if Satan's going to tempt the son of God with these things in hopes that he fails he's going to tempt us with these same things. And these are the things that might trip us up and things that we need to be ready for. And so I want to do this. This week we're looking at the second of the three temptations listed in Matthew 4. And I want to look at the temptation and then I want to suggest a couple of spiritual disciplines to implement so that these things wouldn't have the same kind of hindrance to you as you walk through your life with the Lord. Let's read again uh, just verses 5-5. Six and seven. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus responded to Satan, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jerusalem is a city that's built in the mountains. And so that's why when you read your Bible, frequently it says the people went up to Jerusalem, because in order to go from anywhere in Israel to Jerusalem, you're going up in uh, vertical distance. And so as the people go up to Jerusalem, they're seeing the city out there in front of them, and the top mountain in Jerusalem is Mount Moriah the highest point in the city. And at Mount Moriah, that, this was the mountain that Abraham took Isaac for an offering. This is also the, the place where Solomon built his temple. And if you're trying to build a big temple... You need a big platform. Well, it's difficult to have a big platform on a mountain. And so what happened there, and you can still see remnants of it today, you see it as the the western wall or the wailing wall. A, A huge retaining wall had to be built around the top of this mountain and then backfilled in order to have a flat platform to put the temple on. And so it's what you see When you turn on CNN or a news show, when they show Jerusalem, that's the high point of the city. It's currently the location for the Dome of the Rock, this golden Muslim shrine, which is supposedly the place that Muhammad ascended into heaven, which just for information's sake helps you get a sense of the tensions in Jerusalem. You've got this one location that's very meaningful to Christians. You've got this one location that's very meaningful to Jews. And you've got this one location that's very meaningful to Muslims. And so that's why it would just take just a tiny little spark to get a huge war going there. And is why it's very difficult, as easy it is for us, to sit and look at the Middle East and say, why can't they just sort of split this thing up and get it over with? It just doesn't work quite as easily as that because you have thousands of years of history and people's whole religion built on a particular site. And so it's very problematic. Well, Jesus is coming to the temple, and it's this place that Satan takes him to. And if you look at the Temple Mount area, the southeastern quadrant of the Temple Mount, there's a corner, and at that corner it drops off into a valley called the Kidron Valley. And if you were to stand on that corner and look down, it would be about 500 feet. would not be a corner you'd want to stand on. And most scholars think that Jesus and Satan were standing at this corner and Satan was tempting him to jump off and put God to the test. And I want to look at the, this temptation because I think it's really twofold, and both of the folds we can get ourselves folded into. First, it's the temptation to be spectacular. Jesus is faced with the temptation to be Spectacular. He had claimed to be the son of God. Satan said, well, let's, let's put him to the test. Let's, let's go to the corner. The highest point, and this is the temple. I mean, this is, this is the best place you can come. All the faithful are coming, and they're looking to say, we're looking for God here, and Jesus, we can get you up on this corner temple, where everybody's gonna see you, and you can just do a swan dive off the corner, and angels will come and rescue you. All the faithful are gonna see this spectacular event, and they're just gonna be coming, they're gonna come rushing to you. I mean, this is a a perfect place to showcase your trust in God. Showcase yourself. Do something spectacular. Prove to everybody that you're somebody special. Is that a powerful temptation in our culture today? Showcase yourself. Do do something spectacular that everybody's going to notice. Prove that you're somebody. Make sure people know what your resume is. I mean, that's powerful. In in our culture, in our sort of media-dominated culture, it breeds endless opportunities to showcase yourself, does it not? I mean, we live in a culture that just has multiple opportunities for you to walk through and to showcase yourself. I mean, you can talk about sports programs, you can put your own face on YouTube and people can look at what you do. You can get involved with American Idol or you can get involved with a reality television show. Just opportunities to showcase yourself. And probably much to the chagrin of many of the people under 30 here. But come on, what's Facebook? It's really a billboard for yourself, is it not? You just put pictures of yourself up there, information about yourself that you think people are going to find interesting. And generally it's not that interesting, but I mean you think it is. It's just a billboard. It's an electronic billboard to say, My life counts. My life has value. Come and look at me. I mean, the the way we work in our culture is just absolutely endless. How you can say, I need people to see who I am. I need to prove my value. I need to prove my worth. I'm somebody special. And I think probably a, a more subtle way, but one that really is a favorite in Christian circles, is what somebody in our office this week called resume dropping. If you're familiar with this term. I was not familiar with it. Ter- the term, as hip as I am, I was not familiar with the term, resume dropping. And, and you, but I know you know what it is, even if you don't know the title. It's what it's it's when you get around people in conversations, and they're going to tell you a lot about themselves somehow. They just sort of drop their resume, and because it's a Christian circle, I, I would see this all the time. What they drop is, oh, I'm, I'm really reading this very spiritual book. I'm exercising these particular spiritual disciplines. I've, you know, I've got this guy's sermon series on my iPod, and I listen to it every time I go out for a walk. It's a way somehow in the Christian community, it's a real super spiritual way of just doing the same thing. I've met this person. I listened to this person. I read this book. I do these spiritual disciplines. Would you notice that I'm somebody, please? And when you get to the church, the temptation to be spectacular really encounters very little resistance. I mean, how, how easy it is for a worship service that's meant to be focused on God to just so easily slide into focus on the musician. And how talented this person is and let's notice this person. I mean, it's just so easy for that to happen. But where, what, what point at the church is this temptation most powerful? To be spectacular. To make sure people know that you're somebody special. To prove yourself to the congregation. Where in the church is the temptation the most powerful? right here I mean every week I hear these little voices not real little voices you know what I'm saying (laughs) might be you know a way to empty out the church Um, but it's Paul you got to bring your a-game today You've got to prove that you really worked on something meaningful all week long. I mean, you're trying to build the church and you want people to come back, so you better have you better have the A game. You you better make sure you do something spectacular that people go, Wow, what an what an incredible, dynamic speaker, so that they keep coming back. I mean, the pressure here is terribly real. And if you're thinking, gosh, I had no idea, wake up! If, if Satan thought he could get the Son of God to be spectacular, how much easier a target is it for the fallen human being behind the pulpit? And so we have to be aware. We, can't, we just cannot think, well, I'm sure I'm not going to follow that temptation. That's one of the most powerful temptations that I would face. And so if you're thinking, well, I wonder how I could pray for my pastor. This is the way. This is a very real temptation for you. It's a very real temptation for somebody who does music. It's a most powerful temptation for the person who stands right here. And so we have to get ourselves ready. Henry Nowen delivered a speech that got turned into a book called In the Name of Jesus. And it was a speech to pastors about temptation. And he talked through Matthew chapter 4, and he said this, Stardom and heroism, which are such obvious aspects of our competitive society, are not at all alien to the church. The pastor's dominant image of his role is to have the power to draw thousands, to make many conversions, to be popular with the youth and the elderly. We feel we should be able to do it all and to do it successfully. It's a real temptation to want to be spectacular, to be noticed, to draw people to yourself. It's interesting that Jesus did say at a later point in His ministry that one day He would be in Jerusalem and He would draw all men to Himself. He is going to come back to Jerusalem. And when He comes back, He specifically says this, when I am lifted up, from the earth what does that sound like sounds like this leap off the corner when i am lifted up from the earth i will draw all men to myself but what is he referring to he's referring to the cross You see, his definition of spectacular, not surprising, is completely opposite of Satan's and the world's definition of spectacular. Satan says, hey, if you really want to be spectacular, this is the way you do it. You showcase yourself. You make sure everybody knows who you are. You you prove yourself. You're above everybody in some area. And Jesus says, that's the wrong definition. You want to know what spectacular is, Satan? It's this right here. It's getting underneath everyone in the whole world. That's spectacular. Anybody can throw themselves off the corner. But who can do this? And when I do this, then men and women are going to be drawn to me when I am high and lifted up on a cross He goes on, Jesus goes on to say, and if anyone wants to follow after me, they can. Are you a Christian? You want to be spectacular? Anyone who wants to come after me, this is all they have to do. What's it say? Take up your Cross and follow after me. You see, if we're going to live in this world that has a completely different definition of what spectacular is, this is what we've got to show them. And say, no, no, this is the way we do it. But inside the church, we're so so worried about our our facial features, what people see. And we're so worried about dropping our resume all around. So we make sure everybody knows who we are. We're somebody special. We're trying to prove ourselves. And I wonder what ways you encounter the temptation to be spectacular. How does that work its way out? In your life, the second temptation, clearly stated, is to put God to the test. I mean, you're saying you believe in God. Let's let's go ahead and take this, you know, belief out for a ride and see if it really proves out. And when Jesus has a reference back, he's really referring back to. Uh, Exodus 17, where God led his people into a very dry place. Oh, I really want you to hear that phrase again. God's people didn't just happen to be in a dry place. God led the people to a very dry place. situation doesn't look good and when you read Exodus 17 you learn some things about God's people when they're in a dry place what do you learn in Exodus chapter 17 about God's people when they're in a dry place number one they're critical and this isn't really a very pretty picture of God's people they're critical they're quarrelsome I love this. This cartoon, it was so, uh, so funny to me and so, uh, painful to read how truthful it was. And I said it maybe a year ago. It's the Charlie Brown comic strip and Linus is sitting in a chair with his blanket and he's looking at the television or something and Lucy's standing behind him. And Lucy says this, she's looking at Linus and she says, it's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. The next frame. What happens? Linus says. And Lucy in the final frame says this. I just feel a criticism coming on. (laughs) I mean, have you met somebody like that? Just by looking at you, Paul. I feel a criticism coming on. You're not getting what you want, James says. So you become critical. You become quarrelsome. The second thing we learn about God's people from chapter 17 is they immediately assume the worst of their leaders. Moses! Have you let us out? Let our children out? Let our livestock out? Everybody to die of thirst? I mean, he's got some sinister plan in mind for the people. And then finally, in verse 7, they also assume the worst about God. The God who had led them out of Egypt, they now say, he's not here. I mean, think about the distance it takes to travel to get to that statement. You stood at the edge of a sea that opened up. You saw God take care of the Egyptian army. And now you're in a dry spot and you think, He's not here. He's not real. Or He doesn't care for me. And so at the top of this little pinnacle... Jesus is standing at this very high point and Satan is saying, let's put your God on trial. I mean, let's see if He's really going to come through. I mean, you've been in the wilderness for 40 days. You're hungry. Looks like He may have forgotten about you. Let's see if He's forgotten. Let's put Him to the test. And Satan's temptation is to say to Jesus, let's see if God exists To make your plans come through. And Jesus says, God doesn't exist to make my plans come through. I exist to make God's plans come through. Philip Yancey has a very powerful book called Disappointment with God, which I would recommend to read at some point, especially if you have that disappointment in your life. And at the outset of the book, he encounters a young man who has a very great disappointment with God. And the young man puts God to the test, and then God doesn't respond appropriately, and then the young man cashes in his faith. And Philip Yancey writes this about his conversation with the young man. The young man says, It seemed to me like I was all alone in the world. You notice how that right there, just I'm out in the wilderness. I don't feel like God is around. It doesn't look like He's here. I prayed for hours. I had the sensation of stepping off a ledge in the darkness with no idea where I might land. That was up to God. Finally, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I came to my senses. Nothing had happened. God had not responded. Responded in what way? (laughs) <laughs> the way I wanted him to respond. I put him to the test and he didn't come through. Why not just forget about God and get on with my life? I wonder how many of us have thought that. The struggle was over. My life was my own. It seems silly now, but this is what I did next. I picked up my Bible and a couple of other Christian books and walked out my back door, piled my books on a barbecue grill sprayed them with lighter fluid, struck a match. Bible verses and bits of theology broke off in tiny crumbs of ash and floated skyward. My faith was going with them. I mean, I wonder how many of us have felt that way. Your your faith is just going up in flames. Because it just doesn't look like God's around. I mean, He was at one point. I know it for sure. But right now, the point at which it feels like I need Him the most, He just can't somehow seem to be found. And my faith is just going up in a flame. Ready to cast your faith in for sight. I wonder how many times this temptation came upon Jeremiah. I mean, I think about Jeremiah, the preacher, for 40 years. And his best sermon with the most response was the very first sermon. And for 40 years, he had a steady descent. Nobody listened to him, not after 40 years. You couldn't find one person except for Baruch. Forty years of preaching, and he ends up getting killed in Egypt. And I wonder how disappointed he must have been. How many times he must have felt when he was down in the cistern. I just guess God has forgotten about me. I mean, I know he I heard him back in chapter 1. I know he was going to do all these things. It's just not looking good right now. And how often he wanted to put him to the test. You see, if we don't, if we don't understand that these are real temptations, if we don't understand how to begin to face these temptations to be spectacular or to put God to the test, then we're just going to quickly be derailed. And when it comes to putting your faith in the crucible and you are needed to act at that moment, you're going to be so tangled up with these things that you're not really going to be able to make any forward progress. You're not going to be any help. And so here are a couple of spiritual disciplines that I think are helpful to these two temptations. In the temptation to struggle against being spectacular, the spiritual discipline I would suggest is confession. If you need, if you feel the need to showcase yourself, to resume drop, one of the things that can give you a good adjustment is confession you you you're intentionally exposing to someone else not to everyone you come across you you run into those people that they want to give you their whole life story every time they meet you know a new person that's not what we're talking about we're talking about one person that you can trust somebody who does not need you And you concretely tell them what your sin is. Because then, (laughs) when you want to pretend, you'll know there's one other person out there that knows you're a fake. And if everyone knew what I knew, they would know you're not that spectacular. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, Confession in the presence of a brother who is the profoundest, profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. In the confession of concrete sins, concrete sins, not, this is not a confession. Oh man, am I a sinner? It's really no mystery that I'm a sinner. That's not a confession. Everybody knows that. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying, find a brother, find a sister that you can tell your concrete sins. This is when I thought. This is when I said. This is when I did these things. I need to confess that to somebody and I need some help. When we confess concrete sins to a brother, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. In confession, the Christian begins to forsake his sins. Their dominion is broken. Confession is where the Christian wins victory after victory. Dallas Willard says this about confession. In confession, we lay down the burden of hiding and pretending, which normally takes up a dreadful amount of human energy. I remember going out to the high school and just thought, the energy that it takes for your average high school student to hide and pretend is enormous. They really don't want anybody to see who they are. They're terrified of that. And I wonder how, how much energy it takes at Christ Community Church to come in every Sunday and hide and pretend that you're somebody that you're really not. Confession begins to to put the old man to death. If you're struggling with sin, you need to concretely confess it to somebody else who can show you to the cross. The second thing that we talked about in terms of the temptation was to put God to the test when you're in a dry spot spiritually and you feel like your faith is going up in a flame The spiritual discipline of having community, uh, a group of people around you who share your faith is, I think, the thing that would be most helpful for you. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, I mean the end of this passage, Matthew 4.11, it says that even the angels came and attended to Jesus. Where, where else did an angel come and attend to Jesus? You remember? In the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, in the place where it felt like everything's going to go down right here, he needed somebody, some people around him to shore him up. And so if he's going to need that, we're going to need that. One commentator says this, It is the manner of God to sustain the afflicted by the intervention of others. You know, I've uh, been on both sides of this community where people have come into my office, people have come into my house and sort of just melted down. I've gone to somebody's house than had a meltdown. And when when those people come to me or I go to those people, most of the time, I'm not looking for an answer. What I'm looking for when I go find my friend is I'm asking them, can I borrow some of your faith? I mean, I'm, I'm all out here. I'm, I'm about ready to cash in my faith for sight. I'm ready to put it all on the barbecue grill and just say, it's just not working. And so I need somebody to say, Paul, when you can't hold yourself up, I'm going to hold you up. I can be held up by somebody else's faith. Somebody else's strength. Because when I have pain in my life or I have dry places in my life, what lies behind the pain is my question of, does God really care? Does God really exist? That's really what I'm asking at those times. And so we have to borrow from each other. Probably, and I'll close with this, the most powerful example of this community is something I read just uh, this past week in a book I got from the library on a city called Leningrad. Leningrad is now called St. Petersburg, and it's a large metropolitan city in Russia. And during World War II, Leningrad was the site of a very horrific battle, a siege between the German army and the Russian army. And what Hitler decided to do as he began to march across Russia is to say, you know, I just can't take every city. And so on this big city, it was walled in by water on one side. And if I can just sort of have a a ground force that wraps around the city and I can shell it night and day. Cut off all of its food and water supplies, then eventually the city's gonna cave and I won't have really lost any troops by going into the city. And Hitler sent this to the front line to help people, in the German army, understand what he was after. This was his quote. All offers of surrender from Leningrad must be rejected as the problem of housing and feeding the people cannot and should not be solved by us. In this struggle for survival, we have no interest in keeping even a portion of the 2.5 million people alive. We're surrounding the city, and we don't have an interest in even a portion of them coming out alive. And so there was a siege that lasted essentially 900 days, where the Germans ringed the city of Leningrad, shelled Leningrad, and hoped that they would overtake Leningrad. About halfway through the 900 days, a man named Karl Eliasberg, I think that's how you say his name, was a conductor Leningrad was a very culturally aware city, and he decided he was going to put on a symphony. And he was going to do a symphony that had been written in Leningrad during the siege, a very famous musician. And so for several months, he got different people together who would somehow drag themselves and drag their instruments to this place that they would practice some people would come off the front lines who knew how to play instruments, come, practice, then go back, get their gun, and man the front lines. And one day during a rehearsal, there came to a part where a trumpeter was supposed to perform. And he looked at Elias and says, I just don't have the lung capacity to breathe, and so I can't play my part. And Eliasberg very calmly looks at him and says, "Oh, I, I think you have the strength." And they waited a moment and then he played his part. The practice lasted for several months, and August 9th was a day that Hitler announced they would take Leningrad. And so Eliasberg decided August the 9th at the Philharmonic Hall, that's when we're going to do the symphony. Just to kind of stick it in his eye. And so all the people come to the, to the hall. The, the hall is packed. The commanders of the Russian army make sure that everybody can hear it that's outside the hall. They make sure that it's, it gets onto the radio. So if you're in any kind of radio distance, you can hear it. And this is what is written in the book about that moment. Waves of emotion surged through the concert hall. In the first movement, it was anger. In the second, sadness. As the symphony reached its conclusion, some members of the orchestra failed. They were utterly exhausted. It was so loud and powerful, I thought I'd collapse, one musician responded. In a remarkable, spontaneous gesture, the entire audience rose to its feet, willing them to keep playing. At the finish, there was silence. Someone at the back of the auditorium began clapping. Then there was a thunderous ovation. They knew that this was not a passing episode, but the beginning of something. After the siege was over, they found a journal from a German soldier. And he wrote this, When we heard the defiant broadcast, we began to understand we would never take Leningrad. You see what was happening? These people who were going down relied on the group of people to say, I need you to play, and I need to listen. And would you help me when I'm faltering, and I'm going to help you when you're faltering. But if you don't have that kind of community, when you reach a crucible in your faith, and you will reach one, you're going to reach more than one, and you're going to think, I just don't think God really cares. Maybe He doesn't even exist. You're going to need somebody to come in and say, you can make it. You can use my faith until you get your faith back. You can use my strength until you get your strength back. But I'm afraid that in a church, it's so easy just to be an island and not really share your life with somebody. And that when you get to that point, you don't have any place to go. And so if you're not in a journey group, if you're not in a community group, if you're not in some kind of group that's helping you when your faith falters, you need to be in one. And you need to be in one because somebody else's faith is going to be faltering. And they're going to want and need you. And they're going to want to borrow some of your faith to keep going. Do you have the temptation to prove yourself? To be somebody? To make sure people understand your resume? If you don't wrestle that down, when the time comes to perform, you're going to get tangled up. Because it's going to be about you instead of about God. If you have the temptation to give up When you have the temptation to give up, do you have people around you that you can borrow from their faith? Let's pray together. Lord, in a congregation, in this congregation, I'm certain that there are some people who struggle mightily with the need to prove themselves. To showcase themselves, to make sure they're heard and seen. And I have no doubt that there are people here who are just about ready to give up on you. You simply haven't performed like they thought you would. And so there's great need here this morning that I pray that you have met through your Son, the cross, and His successful resistance to temptation, these same temptations. So I pray now that you would minister to these people, help them see themselves, help them to see you, help them to get ready to serve. Lord, as we also worship in our offerings, I pray that this just is used in a way to proclaim the gospel, whatever that might look like in all of its forms, the truth to people who are thirsty and dying of thirst. In Jesus' name, Amen.